Good evening again, and as we expressed earlier, as Roger so aptly stated, how delighted we are, each of us, to be able to assemble, to come together on this occasion and at this time. We're certainly appreciative for the blessing of health we've each been given, and tonight as we give some thought to yet another uh, chapter in that book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament, let me just take a moment, if I might, and again, beseech your continued prayers on behalf of those gospel meetings. Not only the meeting here, coming up in the month of May, with Brother Tom Holland being our guest speaker, but also that meeting that it's in the office, Matt, just behind the door. But also that gospel meeting at the Flins Creek Congregation. That meeting as it takes place on the 21st to the 24th of the month of April, certainly that will be very, very shortly coming to pass. And as I would beseech your prayers on behalf of that meeting, the brethren there have certainly been already involved in preparing for it, and my family and I are looking forward to being a part also of that gospel endeavor. The week prior to that, though, there is yet another gospel meeting I've been invited to participate in, and that meeting is in White County, just outside Sparta at the Corinth Church of Christ. So if you would, please add that to your prayer list and pray also that that which is done there will also be in accordance to the will of God and that much good might be accomplished in an everlasting way at that location. That particular congregation, again, is at the Corinth Church of Christ. That meeting is the 14th through the 17th and also in the month of April. The book of Zephaniah, as we have studied in that book now for the last two Sunday evenings, and tonight will be the third, has been a study that has helped us appreciate that even in these days of the Old Testament, it does help us see, just as Malachi 3.6 tells us, God changeth not. His consideration for justice, His consideration in regards to mercy is just as clearly seen in those pages of the Old Testament as in fact we perceive them even in other places in the Word of God. In chapter number 1 of the book of Zephaniah, we observe the theme of this book was set before us, the day of the Lord. And as that particular discussion prevailed, we noted that that day was far different than what the people of Israel were expecting. They thought it was a day only for their behalf in terms of their victory over their enemies. But God reminded them it was a day of gloominess, a day of judgment, and a day of wrath. And if they were filled with iniquity and sin, they too would receive the powerful might of God's wrath. We noticed in chapter number 2, we turned our attention then to the message of repentance and appreciated in that that those who dwell carelessly, Zephaniah 2.15, will of course have to face the terrible onslaught of the justice again of God. But as the prophet Zephaniah uttered all those things... We do have chapter number 3 remaining. As you can see on that slide, some of the things about chapter 3 perhaps prompt us to wonder what message is left. If the day of the Lord was chapter 1, and if chapter 2 highlighted the nature of repentance, what other kind of message would be so useful and would be so valuable for God's people? May I submit to you that that subject of chapter 3 is also such a positive message. One of the things that all of us should keep in mind is that the God of heaven and His Word is a balanced presentation. It's not always only negative and it's not always only positive. He tells us always exactly what we need. And at times that demands some negative consideration, things that must not be done and things that must be changed. 
it is perhaps worthwhile to notice that even today the degree of that balance is so needed, isn't it? We should be on guard when, say, a particular preacher does nothing but preach negatively, for he's missing half the point. Isn't it true that when you start a car, that battery needs two terminals, one negative and one positive? And if either one fails, and if either one doesn't work, it will not start the vehicle. Both kinds of preaching are necessary, and both kinds of study are so very valuable. It is that way when we come to Zephaniah chapter 3. As you look at the third chapter of this particular book, it starts with a rather thunderous tone. Beginning in verse number 1, Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. And you might notice if you're reading in some translations, there's an exclamation mark at the end of that verse indicating that there is a strong note of power in the speech. There is an exclamation in regard to the thrust of it. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. That's verses 1 and 2 of Zephaniah 3. Immediately we notice that verse number 2 speaks so strongly about errors that someone had made. You'll note with me, she obeyed not the voice. Secondly, she received not correction. Thirdly, she trusted not in the Lord. And finally, she drew not near to her God. Whoever it is that was under discussion immediately was guilty of a fourfold set of errors. She had failed to heed the correction God had given. She had failed to trust in God. She had failed in a number of ways that should have been so readily possible for her to consider. For all those reasons, we might ask, so who is the topic and who is this she to whom the prophet refers? The language as it appears in that verse and those that follow, the context before us, suggests that these are the errors of Jerusalem. That these are the mistakes of Jerusalem. These are the choices and the foolish ones that Jerusalem had made. Verse number 3 says, Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Immediately we notice a prescription that is not at all positive. Isn't it true that her princes, those that were in positions of leadership, those who had the prerogative of governmental leadership, they had acted very foolishly. Described as roaring lions, they're taking advantage of the people. Rather than assisting them, benefiting them, working on their behalf, they're filling their own coffers, if you please, with the benefits of the people. Such is a shameful thing, isn't it? Verse number 4, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. We noticed previously in this chapter that the discussion had touched on the princes, but now we are almost amazed as we appreciate verse 4 describing the prophets. These ought to have been, of all people, those who drew the people near to God. These ought to have been those that taught the truth and did so uncompromisingly. These ought to have been the ones who, among all others, directed the people in the right, godly, and correct way. But we notice they are described as light and treacherous. That word treacherous indicates deception. These prophets could perhaps be bought with a bribe. These prophets could perhaps be motivated by personal filthy lucre, if you please. 
Maybe it could be these prophets, it says they were light, meaning that they didn't give consideration to the thoroughness and fullness of what it was that God had revealed. They were misled into other things. The human family is often tempted to dwindle in lightness, aren't we? As you can see in verse number 4, they have done violence to the law. Although it may seem nearly unthinkable, these prophets, those of whom the prophet Zephaniah was speaking, many of them throughout the decades prior to this, had turned their attention to do violence to the law. They specifically and willfully taught what the law did not say. They failed to teach what it did say in many cases. And as a result, they did violence to it. They corrupted the nature of its presentation by leading the people to believe what it did not say. And in doing violence to it, of course, the people suffered. They thus were not living in compliance with the truth and purity of the Word of God. That suffering, of course, was about to haunt them tremendously because Babylon was waiting in the wings. Less than 25 years away and off into captivity, this people would go in part because they had not given heed to the prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 27 through 29, the inspired writer there, God through Jeremiah, said, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. And as a part of that description, he highlights that they had not listened to the words of my servants, God said, the prophets. The prophets are rather noble figures. And as you look forward to verse 5 in this chapter, you'll notice that it says, The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth He bring His judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame." The unjust knoweth no shame. Hasn't it always been the case that the godly are the ones who shed tears over sin? The ungodly could care less. The ungodly are in positions it doesn't matter to them. They're the ones that shed no tears over sin. You and I serve a God who proverbially weeps because of the sins of the human family. And in marvelous love sent His Son so that mankind could be saved from the terror of that sin. Is it any wonder that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 11, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul was incessant in his persuasion of men, understanding that the terror of the Lord is awaiting those that are unfaithful and those who do not obey the gospel. As you can see, even in the early days of Zephaniah, that does bring us to this interesting statement of verse number 6. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. God says through Jeremiah, I tried to get their attention. I destroyed their cities. I acted another waste, hopefully to garner what they thought, and yet they still paid no attention. Isn't it a sore and sad spectacle when God tries to get the human family's attention, but the human family is so wicked and so stubborn and so bent on their own sinful and wicked ways that they will not heed the message? Quite often in the Old Testament, God tried to get the people's attention. He sent them prophets. He urged them to repent. He left the choice, though, to them. 
In the book of Judges, wasn't it true that we read time and again that God tried to get their attention by allowing the people to go into captivity, to oppression, to the Canaanites, to the Moabites, to the Ammonites, to the Philistines, just to name four. And all the while, they seemingly would learn a lesson maybe for a brief time. God would raise up a judge when they would call to Him, but after the judge died... Judges 2 verses 11 to 19 tells us they would fall back into the same error. They didn't seem to perpetually learn any lessons. Tragic, isn't it? Ought not we be wiser than that? Ought not the human family, under appreciation of the coming of the Son, be wiser than that? As you can see in Zephaniah 3 verse number 7, we learn what is an almost amazing description of the people of that day. The last phrase in the, in the verse says it all. They corrupted all their doings. What precedes that is this, they rose up early and corrupted all their doings. It's almost as if they set their alarm clock to get up early to see how much sin they could commit by dinner. Amazing, isn't it? And yet, this wasn't the only era in which that kind of description is found. As you'll notice, for instance, in Micah 7 verse 3, we find the description there also about a people urgent to commit sin, a people overwhelmed in sin. That, of course, the prophet Micah preceded Zephaniah by about 50 years, and yet something just as similar is found in, Ze in Micah, 5, or Micah 7 verse number 3. You'll notice in Isaiah 30 verse number 1, this people commits sin unto sin. We notice also in Nahum 1 verse 3 that God will in no wise clear the guilty. God, you see, will always recognize the guilty and they at some time will have to give an answer for what they've done. Zephaniah preached with such strength, such courage, you and I know today that quite often people aren't that excited to hear the truth, especially when it directly confronts them with the necessity of change in their life. And Zephaniah directly informed them, you have in fact rose up early to corrupt all your doings, and this must stop. The God of heaven is very aware of what you've done. That awareness will only ask us to notice what follows in this chapter. You'll need, you do notice with me that the first seven verses have been very strong and in many ways have presented the negative side of what they've done. As you may have guessed from the way in which the lesson began, a balance probably ought to be discovered. As you and I begin to read in verse number 8, the first word in that verse is the word therefore. Therefore, a conclusion is affirmed and the prophet said, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to pray. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour, them, to pour upon them mine indignation. Even all my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. God did appreciate and stated so clearly that there is coming a time of judgment that had been alarmed and stated back in chapter 1 in regard to the day of judgment, that day of the Lord. But now we notice, for then, verse 9, will I turn to the people a pure language, 
that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. We notice that here is the first ray of light on the horizon in this chapter. Judgment is coming if you will not repent. Judgment is coming upon those that are in fact wicked, and that includes my own people. Not just the nations like the Moabites and others. My people, Jerusalem, have been those also who have not heeded my voice, and they have not followed me with earnestness and faith. You'll notice, interestingly, in verses 19 and 20, we'll look at some of the intervening thoughts in just a moment. But it seems so interesting to notice the thorough way and the thunderous way that this chapter closes. Behold, at that time I will undo all that, that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I gather you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Do you see the, with me the great positive that's there? I'll turn back your captivity. Babylon is coming. To this point you have not repented. And of course in the infinite wisdom of God He knew that they would not. He did affirm to them though that captivity will not be permanent. There's coming a time that it will come to an end and you will have opportunity to come out of that affliction, to come out of that difficulty, and you can again serve and appreciate the location that I will bless you with. We serve and we worship a God who can bring out of captivity. He did His people, those people who were sent into Babylon because of their iniquity and because of their sin. And when they came out, they were here told that they would be given a name and they would understand just how blessed they were. In those intervening verses, you'll notice just a few of the highlights seen in the bottom part of that slide. Some of the things in it sound so lovely, so positive, so enriching, so enthralling. Note with me in passing just a few of them. Verse number 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Previously there had been a description of judgment, things that seemed so dark, but now there's a time for singing, a time for rejoicing, a time for happiness. Why so? Because a new language, if you please, a pure language has been presented, and God's blessing has brought back from captivity. This is God through Zephaniah giving a portrait and a picture of their return under the days later in Ezra and Nehemiah beneath the nature return from Babylonian captivity. You'll also notice this positive thing. Verse number 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. Those kind of thoughts bring us to appreciate, just as easily as it is affirmed there, that this pure language was a language that basically affirmed purified lips. This people was going to rest on something greater than they. It would in fact be developed based on God's revelation to them. 
We'll have more to say in a moment about that pure language. That was the subtitle that I gave to the lesson this, this very evening. That purity of language, though, does prompt us to see how sweet it would be when that remnant would return. Not based on deception, not based on lies, not based on the other kinds of things that had been their lot, and even the lot of surrounding nations. We do see in verse 13, "...the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." we see a picture of a day in the future from Zephaniah's day when the sweetness of that return would describe a people rich because of God's provision, blessed because of God being present amongst them, and fine indeed because of the nature of their reliance not on human deception but on God's truth. That kind of thing only challenges us to understand why did the people not respond as God would have hoped? Why did they not repent? Why did they not develop in them a heart interested to hear and listen and obey? It only reminds us that apparently they were so steeped in their iniquity, so given to the falseness of what those prophets had said. Those false prophets are described in Jeremiah 5.31 like this. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. These people, despite the fact they were God's people, loved error. They were destroyed because of a lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6. And later in that same book, Hosea 13.2 says, You have destroyed yourself. Because of their lack in knowledge and their lack in study, they were led astray into the realms of disaster. And of course, that led them ultimately to captivity. In many ways, a parallel circumstance can easily exist today, can't it? It's no wonder that a church, though once perhaps so knowledgeable, if they fail to study, over time they too shall be destined to doom. And over time, isn't it true, even a community, even in a nation that turns its back upon God. We saw that back in chapter 1, but that same statement has not been set aside in the realms of heaven, has it? God will bless those who have an interest in righteousness and truth, but those who do not obviously shall suffer here and have nothing to look forward to hereafter. As you'll notice, perhaps finally, there are so many implications of the thoughts of Zephaniah 3, even for you and me today. And among them, only these two might well be noted. In Ephesians 4, verse number 28, what an implication we find in all of these things for you and me. Notice this people, verse 13, would not rest in deceit. They would not rest in lies. But isn't it true that God has said that every man speak truth of his neighbor? Ephesians 4, verse 25 and 26. And later in that same chapter, verse 28, let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor with his hands a thing that is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Did you notice here, this would be a working people, those that returned, the remnant, those that would appreciate the nature of the blessing of God and their activity in regard to it. We as Christians are commanded to be working people as well, aren't we? To be always busy in regard to good works. We do read in Titus 3 verse 14, 
Let ours also learn to maintain good works. To maintain good works. You and me, you and I, us, we, as we proceed to do in this present world, in this age, and in this community, those works that God has presented for us to do, those works are often very different than man's definition of works. And they're often very different than what the human family suggests is important. Nonetheless, it's the works that God has set forth. We do remember that James helped us appreciate that faith that works by love or shows itself in the works that you and I do are those works that, of course, lead us to pleasing understanding before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. In 2 Corinthians 8, 21, even Paul, as he addressed the church in Corinth, reminded them of the earnestness of honesty and dwelling in an honorable estate. Even Paul wished to always dwell with honor before his brethren, never in deceit, never in misleading them. Did he not say that lest I myself might be a castaway in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27? It is for those reasons that perhaps we can see the times of refreshing, in fact, were to come. Maybe those elements in Zephaniah even give us a more beautiful picture of the New Testament age, when not just a remnant, but rather an even finer remnant, those who have given their lives into faithful obedience to the Lord, they are the ones who in the New Testament are so highly prized as the very people of God. Those who have accepted the call of the refreshment seen in Acts 3.19. As those thoughts perhaps comes before us, a very brief statement or two about lessons that you and I might appreciate. Although much might be said, verse 4. Verse number 4 of chapter 3 of Zephaniah. That particular verse again ends like this. They have done violence to the law. It may to you and me seem at times astounding, but it nonetheless is a fact. Sometimes it is religious people who do the greatest violence to God's law. Although throughout the course of history we know many secular individuals have done violence to it. They in fact insult it, they revile it, they claim that it's nothing, they've often tried to burn it in fires and hope that it would, of course, cease to be, it is still before us. For God's law shall ever continue under the banner of 1 Peter 1.25. But it's often religious people, those who claim to have some interest in it, that often do the greatest violence to it. The Crusades of a thousand years ago, when they went across the countryside killing people, thinking they were doing God's service. In John 16, 2, on that occasion, the Lord Himself said that sometimes it would be the case that they, in fact, will put you out of the synagogues and even more so thinking that they're doing God's service. Men can deceive themselves, and often they have, and often they do. And often that violence that they do to the law of God is so tragic. For not only do they, of course lead themselves astray, but those who follow them, have confidence in them, also are led astray. Jesus foretold even before the destruction of Jerusalem that there would be false Christs, Matthew 24. Folks claiming that they are the Christ, claiming that they are an influence from God. Didn't the Lord warn them, do not follow them? 
After all, they are false Christ, not true, not from heaven, not of the will of the Master. And today, do we still not hear the warning of 1 John 4, 1? Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. That was written in John's day, and there with the present tense, he said, many have gone out into the world, and you and I are still beneath the nature of that warning, aren't we? Many have chosen, despite the sincerity in their heart, they nonetheless are mistaken. They have garbled the plan of salvation. They have run amuck with the nature of the church. They teach things that simply are not the matter of what the God of heaven has revealed. And as they do this, what violence they have done. Perhaps you've spoken with individuals who are of a belief system like that. They truly believe, my preacher has said this. My dad and mother believed it. Grandma and grandpa believed it and they couldn't have been wrong. May I convince you that often there are those on this world who have taken that wrong pathway. And so can you and I not see that many have done violence to God's law? Not that they've been able to change it, but they and by their activities and the things they've proclaimed and the lives they've lived have led so many to follow that deceptive spirit spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. That deceptive spirit perhaps leads us to notice that that claim of religion sometimes is only that. After all, this book defines it. It's not just a claim. And so when you and I see verses like, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God." and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. To what end? That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. That word perfect identifies complete. The only way you and I can be complete is, of course, through the revelation of this word and the compliance in our life to it. We're complete in Christ. To read Colossians chapter 2, verse number 9 and 10. That completeness maybe leads us to this thought. There was a message to those people about turning from captivity. And I specifically stated it like this. The captivity to which they were, of course, going to turn from. That would be because of the nature of what God had done. He was going to be the one to lead them out of the captivity years later under the working of Zerubbabel, under the nature of the high priest in those days, Joshua. But can you and I not see an interesting parallel for us? Sin is also so captive, captivating in the sense that it captures. How often does the New Testament describe the bondage beneath which we serve as sinners? Paul described it that way in Romans 6 verse, verses 10, 11, and 12, didn't he? He there affirmed, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that word reign identifies it is something that you and I could serve. It is as if it formed for us that which is the leader. And of course, under the following of Satan, that's exactly what it is. But yet, isn't it wonderful that you and I have the opportunity to turn from such captivity? Jesus Christ and His blood can burst those shackles, removing them from us and allow us to serve the only pure and holy one that there has ever been. Jesus, the great one. 
He is the one spoken of as a stronger than the strong man in Mark 3.27. Jesus identified the devil as the strong man, but isn't it wonderful? He was so quick to say, a stronger than the strong man is here. He is the one whose power is able to defeat that devil. And through him, you and I can do the same. One of the texts in the Revelation that helps us as it paints that picture is Revelation 12, verse 11. They overcame Him. That's the faithful overcoming the devil. They overcame Him by the blood of the... by the, the word of their testimony and by being willing to die for His cause. The blood of Jesus, the Word of God, those are armaments that the devil cannot defeat. No wonder you and I must tie carefully, closely, and always to them and appreciate in them the thoroughfare that leads to the free being freed from sin. Paul and the other New Testament speakers, as they spoke about sin, and as they spoke about the wonderful freedom to be enjoyed from it, time and again they point us to verses like those I've listed there for us to consider. The wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. It's no wonder that Jesus could say that I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Verse 12 of John 8. It is perhaps in that regard that we can enclose our lesson in this brief series on Zephaniah. Revisiting a little statement found in verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. That sounds so lovely, doesn't it? In the midst of a chapter that highlights their sinfulness, their wickedness, and the difficulties to come their way, He says, Then, then, I will present a pure language for the purpose that they may all call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one consent. I'm sure that those who are at least of proper heart must have looked forward to the reality of that day spoken of in that verse. Looked forward to a time when this pure language would be a reality and this time when all could serve God in one consent. When the name of the Lord would be exalted when the greatness and majesty of His way would be highlighted. As you and I think about the days of the captivity and its ending with the coming of Zerubbabel and those others, maybe in light of that, you and I can at least appreciate the admonition found in those verses. A pure language. That phrase again literally means a people of purified lips that wouldn't speak deceit and lies. God, of course, demands His people to be that way today. In Ephesians 4.29, this statement is found that ought to be descriptive of you and me. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Do the words that you and I speak minister grace to those that hear us? Or are there idle words that serve no benefit? Do we too often leave the master out of our conversation? Maybe you and I should again desire to perhaps hone our skills in regard to that purified lips so that we can speak with no lies and deceit and of course by that hopefully lead many, many others 
to understand the message of salvation that God would wish them to know. This people of pure language, that likely is one of the highlight thoughts in this whole book of Zephaniah. It is such a beautiful horizon there in which the people can look forward to a better day. You and I look forward to a better day. We know that in the church in which we exist, how blessed we are, but we do look forward to a day far sweeter and brighter, a day in which all the hopes that's ours can become reality as we appreciate living forevermore in the place called heaven. Sometimes as we come near the close of that slide, we notice that the serving of the Lord is something that too often we forget. We often allow the encumbrances of the day, the demands of the job, the considerations that are about us occupy our attention perhaps too much when the serving of the Lord is something that seemed to rest always on Paul's mind. Nothing else was important to him for me to live as Christ, he said, and to die as gain, Philippians chapter 1. He also could say in 2 Timothy 4, verse, or rather chapter 1, verse number 12, about the nature of his life and the nature of where his commitment was. He said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What about where you and I stand this very night? Is our mission the same? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Have you and I counted everything else but loss? Do we use our talents day by day in His service? We should. He blessed us with them and expects us to use them to His honor and glory. Tonight, as we close this study of Zephaniah, it challenges us to repent if that's the need of our heart. It reminds us that there is a day of the Lord that's coming, even for you and me. And it also reminds us so very easily that God wishes a people of pure language. And surely, when you and I are released from the captivity of sin, we too can joyfully live day by day, hand in hand with the Master. Rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. This very evening as we close this study of Zephaniah, analyzing and scrutinizing our life, where do you and I stand before the God of heaven? Are we like they of Zephaniah's day in need of hearing the message to repent? If so, why not do that tonight? If you are already faithful, you're already a person of pure language, Zephaniah 3.9, continue to live so and understand that just as they could understand His blessing, so too can we. Brother Jeff has chosen a hymn of encouragement, and if at this time, this convenient opportunity, we could be of assistance in your public response, we'd be delighted to help you. If you have never rendered that initial obedience, you need to believe and to repent and to confess and to be baptized. If you have become a Christian but have not been faithful, and you need the prayers of brethren on your behalf, beseeching God for your forgiveness, we could take care of that tonight and you could leave here with a clean conscience, a pure life and you could pillow your head tonight at ease knowing all is well with your soul. If you're not in that position, why not make things right and proceed if you would while together we stand and while we sing.